Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. Coming back at you from somewhere in the Florida panhandle into your headphones, car speakers, television sets, and wherever you choose to listen to this podcast, I thank you and appreciate you either way. On this episode of the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, I'm just going to be talking about a smorgasbord. Hopefully I said that right. A smorgasbord of various topics. I don't really have a firm agenda to say, uh, but we'll see how it goes. I guess I'm just going to wing it this time. I want to kick off the show talking about a bit of personal related stuff, not not like uh, hygiene or health personal related. I'm talking about training. I am talking about teaching another class at my jiu-jitsu club, and that was a lot of fun. What was really interesting to me in teaching, which I taught, I taught not only, uh, not only did I teach Sumi Gaeshi again, but I spent some time discussing gripping strategies because I think that grip fighting is an underdeveloped game in a lot of people's, uh, jujitsu. And a lot of times when I'm, when I'm in a roll or rolling with somebody, I, I tend to get dominant grips almost, almost at will. And, one of the things that I really covered in this class that I taught uh, just probably about a week or two ago is that I taught them some basic gripping strategies, some basic approaches and how to strip grips. But one of the things that I tried to hammer home is I'm like, guys, it, you don't have to accept the grip. If somebody just grabs you on the lapel, you don't have to sit there and take it. You can actually do something about it and and impose your will and and, and turn the table, so to say. So we practice some some basic gripping, some basic uh, sugiyashi, some basic tai sabaki, and then we right, went right into sumigayashi from a kenkayotsu position. So I thought the class went really well again. I, I guess my litmus test for what went really well is if nobody got hurt, and, and thankfully nobody did get hurt. One thing I did learn, though, which is a unique experience for me, is... I am not experienced teaching a room full of beginners. Usually every single club that I've ever been to, there has always been another higher ranked, higher experienced person. But I'm dealing with a class that has zero experience in judo. 
unless you want to say BJJ really stands for basically just judo, which I do think there's something to that. But in terms of being up on their feet, from a judo perspective, they, they're all beginners. Now, some of them are you know, former wrestlers. They competed in, in high school and even in college. But for strict judo, it's a, it's a unique experience. And one of the lessons that I had to learn is as an instructor, I need to be a bit more proactive in making sure that people pair up properly because beginner students don't know what kind of body types will work well for them, how to pair up properly. And for me, from my observation, there was probably two pairings or so that was regrettable. And I, because I was just so focused on everybody's safety, I didn't really quite realize what had happened until maybe 15 minutes into the class. And then I was like, I, I wasn't sure if I should just keep the pairs or if I should break them up. So I, I, I didn't want to make anybody feel badly or anything like that. So I decided to let things be. Thankfully, nobody got hurt, but it was an important lesson for me because I have to ensure as an instructor that the learning experience is a positive one. And when you're matched with somebody that that's not really a really uh, a good body type for you, it can be challenging. I remember years ago, this was like maybe within my first month of class, I got caught in a situation like this. And I was I, I, this was the first time I practiced kata. And here I am, back then I was about 145 pounds. I get paired up with this guy that's like 230 pounds. He's like six foot three and I'm like five foot six. And here I am trying to do standing kata garuma in nage no kata with this guy. And I think if I recall correctly in that evening, I ended up pulling a muscle. Yeah, no kidding, right? How about that? And it, it was one of those situations where like everybody in the class had already paired up with people that made sense for them. And here I am with this older dude at the time, which... Which, in, in hindsight, that older dude, I'm probably like that guy's age right now. So here I am collapsing under the weight of this massive man. And unfortunately for him, trying to get really low on a short guy like me, just it was, it was just a disaster. It was one of those things. It actually, it, it, if I recall correctly, it was kind of one of those lessons where I needed to, I learned to be a little bit more proactive in picking training partners. And, you know, in that situation... Learning to be more proactive about that sort of thing eventually led me to become more outgoing and a little more extroverted because back then I was I was very introverted but and there's nothing wrong with being an introvert but being an introvert and it's affecting your ability to you know forge new relationships and stuff that's not really a good thing and and I was that kind of an introvert but through years of judo and these types of situations, I learned to be more of an extrovert. And as the years went on, I, I instead of being the guy that was shied away from meeting new people, I, in the club I became somebody who would reach out to new people so to make them feel as comfortable as possible. And, and as a result, over years of that, that extended to my own personal life. So now, in many ways, I'm, um, I'm an extrovert of sorts. And most people in my life get the very best of my personality, especially uh, the listeners on this hideous podcast, get the very best of who I am. So where was I going with that? Um, yeah, so I can't expect that of everybody when when beginners are trying to find their way in a judo class. So 
In the future, I know that I should be a little more proactive in pairing up certain people. If I see a mismatch, I should be able to say something. I just, I just, I, I thought it would be okay. I, I didn't want to make anybody feel badly or whatever the case may be. But in the future, I guess I'm just going to have to be a little more proactive in that regard. So speaking of jujitsu uh, and and my club, this past Thursday, as of this recording, which is currently on three fourteen. It was promotion night at the club. So I'd like to take a moment to congratulate Kyle, Will, Anton, Luke, Kendra, Zach, and myself for getting a stripe on their belts. Now, I must say, I'm really, I'm really glad and, and proud of the recognition. And that's really all that, that, that a stripe promotion means. It, it's just recognition that you're getting better. And really, any rank promotion... You know, certainly in judo or, or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's just it's just a single moment in time of recognition that you're getting better. And the the day after that, nobody cares. So recognition is always nice, especially when it comes from your instructor, who for me is the second best coach I've ever had in 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 these grappling sports. And I gotta say, in the past couple of weeks or so in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I feel like that I'm finally making some real significant progress. And it's fun being a student again. I mean, yes, I'm always a student of judo, right? But just like what happened to me in judo, I feel like I'm turning the corner in jiu-jitsu where I'm connecting techniques, right? You know, it's it's kind of like a conversation of sorts where, you know, if you're a white belt and, and getting on into blue belt in jiu-jitsu, you, you start learning techniques and those techniques are akin to words and then you practice you know you learn how to form some of those words and use them in certain sentence structures let's say and then after a while of doing that you kind of get into a a a a mode where instead of just learning words and and how words fit together you start actually speaking sentences of sorts you know what i mean I heard that example years ago, and it certainly happened to me in judo, probably when I was uh, a sankyu, and I would say about 18 months in of regular practice, I I got, I, and it's funny, I've said it before, I, I happened to catch that round of Rondori on film. There was a there was a moment where judo just clicked for me. Doesn't mean that I was a shodan level yet or, or anything like that, but there was something that just turned on and it's like seeing like like having a bunch of puzzle pieces and then you start seeing the picture form. That's kind of what's happening for me in jujitsu. Is that my my technique is getting better, of course. But instead of thinking about what techniques to do and what things are there. I'm just kind of taking the principles that I've learned and applying different principles in, in different situations. Gave you a perfect example in judo. Nobody has ever taught me the fo- nobody has ever formally taught me the combination of osotogari to yoko tomonagi. Nobody's formally taught me that. But because through years and years of practice that's a combination that I can do and and I've I've pulled off that combination. And it's, it's a weird one. Nobody really formally teaches that. But once you start getting an understanding for the principles, it's it, the techniques and trying to fit things together in standard ways, it's not nearly as important. You just, that the principles behind it involve. So anyway, same thing's happening with me in jujitsu. 
like like a lot of times I don't even know the names of some of the things that I'm doing. I I, I still can't really tell you what the difference is between an Americana and a Kimura is. To me, it's Uday Garami. But last week for me during a role, I was stuck in bottom and in I was I had somebody in my half guard. I did some weird sweep. I don't know what the heck that I did, but I I rolled this guy over, not a whole lot of effort involved and and got mount and and then uh, managed to tap him out from there. Not not some newbie either. He's actually really good. So, yeah, if anybody's listening from the club, I'm not putting you guys on notice. That's not what I'm trying to say here. In fact, quite the opposite, because I know the process for me to get better is to continually attack and to continually make mistakes. So, in in, in fact, instead of saying that I'm putting the club on notice, I'm really sitting here saying that you guys are going to have a lot of opportunities to tap me out because I'm going to be trying things and, and doing things a different way to... To really expand on my ability to have what I would call jujitsu conversations. So yeah, so Brazilian jiu-jitsu has been a lot of fun. But you know what? To me, honestly, it's Brazilian jiu-jitsu is judo without uh, rules. Or far less rules. And you know, I've said this. I've hammered this for five plus years. The, one of the greatest benefits for Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the fact that I've got other adults that I can train with that are my age. And I think judo as a whole misses out on a very potential uh, demographic. Doesn't, you know, that demographic, you know, you get beginners that are 20 year old, you know, you know, 18 years old and up. They're not going to win world championships. They're not going to come in and, and, and be Olympic hopefuls. But I really believe getting that demographic, the 18 to 35 year old demographic more into judo would really change things for the better. I really believe that. In fact, I had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago. I was a guest on the Judo Way of Life podcast, which is hosted by a remarkable fellow by the name of David Groom. Now, David was a former high level competitor for for Great Britain. And now he's currently living in Australia, I believe near, uh, right near Sydney. And he's coaching at a really large judo club, a, a club that looks to be a really excellent one by, by my observation, just, just seeing the programs that they have there. And one of the things that we were talking about on his podcast was the high-ranking standards for Australian judo. I've said this before, that I think Australia has the toughest standards uh, for for an average person to earn a showdown that's out there. And I and I I don't you know one point that I made on that podcast episode with David is that I think such high requirements can end up being detrimental to growing judo. Yeah, especially when coaching is tied to rank. Now, I would say that in terms of skill and knowledge, it's even tougher to earn a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu than it is in Judo. In, in Judo, it's relatively easy. I, I've said this many times that probably the, the skill and know-how is, is equivalent for Shodan and Judo to, to a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, I, that's, and that's terms of ability, knowledge, hours on the mat, and so on and so forth. It's about the same. And I've heard people say that the purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the black belt, the first degree black belt in just about every other martial art out there. And I, I think that there's there's some truth to that. But at least in Jiu-Jitsu, for, for somebody really, for whatever reason, they want to be a black belt, 
at least in jiu-jitsu, there's a path for the average person that's passionate about the sport to put in the work, learn, take your time, and and maybe eventually you'll get there. But at least there's a, a, a window of opportunity where that is, and, and it's an opportunity that's not dependent on doing other things. Now, to be clear, this is not a problem everywhere in the world for judo. Believe me, United. Actually, I would say the United States has a fair path. Um, I, I'm I've recently been informed that even Canada now has a a, a more fair path uh, to shodan and, and and coaching for for people. It's a longer path, and that's how it should be. If you're not competing regularly, earning competition points, it should it should take you longer to earn a shodan. But at least there's a path for somebody. Um, that if they really want to pursue that, they can, and they're not going to get shut out just because they're not on the competition circuit. I believe uh, Great Britain also has a a technical path as well that takes longer. But it's my understanding over in Great Britain that they 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 don't respect any black belts that um that that take the technical path only, which which I I find a little funny. But I I mean I can understand that. Uh, but but their competition system is fair. I used to think that it was that you had to win all of your matches on the same day. You just had to earn wins over over a period of time, defe- defeating certain people of your rank. So and that's a pretty fair system, actually. I think that's that's a really good one. But there are other countries. You know, Australia is an example that I, I just when I look at it from the outside looking in, I just think it's it's too tough to their detriment maybe i'm completely wrong about that i'm not even being critical of australia they're, they're gonna do what they're gonna do and they, they're gonna do what they feel is right but sometimes when i see that again i just wonder to what end now continuing on the discussion of the land down under i received two books in the mail from a mr matt Diaquino. now for those of you who don't know matt is a former olympian i believe at the 2008 games representing Australia. He's currently a Judo Australia fourth dan, and I believe he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt now. And he is well known for his beyondgrappling.com website and YouTube channel, which is an excellent one, one that I have gone to many times over the past, gosh, whenever he invented it, after his competitive, certainly last 10 years, it seems. So yeah, people all over the Judo community should know exactly who he is. And if you don't, shame on you. <laughs> anyway, where was I? So this was, we were having a conversation on Reddit. And if you can hear my cat clanging for food in the background, I apologize. Where was I? Oh yeah, Reddit. So so somebody had made mention that, that Matt had two children's books that he'd written. I had no idea. So I was like, wow, that's awesome. I, I where can I get? I don't even remember how the conversation went. But either way, Matt sent me a direct message. He offered to send me two of his books. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Send them to me through Amazon, whatever. That's that's awesome. I, I sent them the address and everything. Got got the books, I think, about a week later. And they're fantastic. They are really great children's books. One is called My First Judo Competition. And the other one is called The History of Judo for Kids. They they are uh, they're really nicely illustrated. the The artwork is just fantastic, the, and the, it's just really great. It's a great kids' version history of judo, and and the other book is is just about their first competition. 
and the emotions a child may go through during their first competition and, and that, you know, I don't want to give away the book, but it's, it's, I'll just say there's really wholesome lessons to be learned from this book. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to keep these books for a very long time because these are going to be the books that I read to my grandchildren, you know, and, and none of, none of my children ever did judo formally with me. They, they've done it a few times here and there. But uh, but I think it would be great if I had a grandchild uh, be involved in this sport as well, and, and I, I would love to be a, a an influence in that regard as a grandparent. And what better way for me to do that than to have these books be their favorite books to read? So Matt, thank you very much. I'm sure you're probably not listening to this, but in case you do, I really appreciate it. So I want to cover a little bit of news that's going on with the war in or war against Ukraine and how that relates to judo. There's been a few new developments that I wanted to cover. Now, I got to give credit to the International Judo Federation for finally having press releases that have stronger language than what was previously communicated. Now, I got to say... I find it interesting the headlines that they use for their press releases. Maybe this is what headlines are like in the rest of the world. I tell you what, in the United States, I don't know about for people who live outside of this country, but man, in the United States, headlines are sensationalized. Headlines are written in a way to trigger an emotional response. And it's it's a big part of the reason why I'm I'm off of Facebook for good, as far as I'm concerned for good. I, I don't see myself coming back to Facebook simply because I'm done being triggered. I, I just can't, I can't stand it. You know, like the old saying goes, if something is offered for free, then you are the product. And, and I, I'm just not going to be a product on Facebook anymore. So I'm just, just bringing this up because it's, it's just interesting to me how, ordinary the headlines are so so here's one headline open letter to the ijf member federations and this is one of those those statements that i felt was a little bit stronger uh letter goes dear presidents dear judo family following various information and communications vehiculated on social media we would like to bring some clarification to the current position of the international judo federation The International Judo Federation deplores the war taking place in Ukraine and we are in complete solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Now, this is the kind of statement that should have come out a long time ago. Uh, Continuing on, all the governments of the world are striving and hoping for successful negotiations that would allow to stop the violence against innocent people. In order to achieve this, we do not wish to add violence on top of violence, nor to be part of it under any form. For example, the president of the French Republic, Mr. Emmanuel Marcon, has a healthy stance on negotiations and he has allowed a space for that. We are following this line of approach and we should, and should the situation require it, we will know how to take tougher measures. At present, understanding the fury that this invasion is provoking, we must, we believe the most urgent thing to do is to help Ukrainian people and the world of judo is mobilized. Numerous clubs are launching refugee welcome operations and material aid. We are engaging in this approach. The International Judo Federation is in direct contact with the Ukrainian Judo Federation, the Ukrainian Olympic Committee, and the IOC, working together for targeted help where needed the most. 
we are offering 200,000 United States dollars as humanitarian assistance for the Ukrainian judo family. Violence in response to the violence can only be a factor of aggravation and justification of the aggressors. Today, it is a moment for solidarity and unity as opposed to divisions and segregations which would mark our existence in a negative way for many years to come. Thank you all for your contribution in helping Ukrainian people in these difficult and sad times. Best regards, Marius Wieser, President of the International Judo Federation. Now that's the kind of statement that was needed to be said uh, a couple of weeks ago. And hey, better late than never, right? And, and I really appreciate the IJF taking a stand against this. And, and, to, and to further uh, push that point, the International Judo Federation officially announced that Mr. Vladimir Putin and Mr. Arkady Rottenberg have been removed from all positions held in the International Judo Federation. Furthermore, the vice president of the IJF and the president of the European Judo Union resigned from his position, a Mr. Sergei Solovnichik. Now, I don't believe that Mr. Solovnichik did anything wrong per se, but he is Russian. And it's my understanding that he stepped down from his position to not cause any further issues or dissension within the European Judo Union. Especially when you consider that this is an elected position. So nobody at the EJU uh, was demanding for his resignation. But perhaps, you know, perhaps he felt that being a Russian, he needed to stand by his president, maybe. I I, I don't know. But I think Mr. Solovichik, uh, you know, did an honorable thing in stepping down and, and, and not causing any issues for for people who are being represented, you know, across the world and across the European Judo Union. Now, earlier in the week, I had read that Russian and uh, Russian athletes and athletes from Belarus were going to compete at IJF events under the IJF flag. However, I recently read, and this was just the other day, um, that Belarus and Russia are no longer competing at any IJF events, even under the IJF flag. It's uh, the statement that I read said, following official communications read by received by the International Judo Federation, the Russian Judo Federation and the Belarusian Judo Federation have suspended their participation from all IJF and EJU international events. There will be no Russian or Belarusian athletes participating in IJF and EJU events with immediate effect. That's really a shame. Now, I don't know of any uh, of too many athletes from Belarus who are who are highly ranked, but man, Russia's got some great athletes. You know, let's not forget the number one ranked athletes in the under 100 kilo and the plus 100 kilo divisions are currently Russians. And we're talking about Tamerlan Bashaev in the plus 100 and Arman Adamian in the under 100 kilo division. You know, I'm also taking a quick look at some of the other rankings in the other divisions. Let's not forget Yago Abuldadze of, of Russia. You know, and on the women's side, you've got Madina Taimazova, who's currently ranked third in the under 70 kilo division. You got a lot of athletes from Russia who are going to be negatively impacted by this war. And it wouldn't shock me one bit if these are all athletes that are completely against uh, invading Ukraine. So without Russia and without Belarus, 
uh, competing at these events, there's an opportunity for some athletes to climb up the rankings and, and get those coveted points and, and, and not have the Russians in their way. And some of those taking advantage of getting those points is Team USA. I don't know if you guys have noticed, and you probably haven't, Team USA has been making a little bit of noise, just a little bit of noise in some of these international competitions. And maybe there's a little bit of hope here. There's a good opportunity here. Now, continuing on the train of thought with Russia and Belarus and the war in Ukraine, the International Judo Federation recently put out a another headline saying, no borders, judo for peace. So I'm like, okay, what's this mean? It's one of those non-triggering headlines, once again, very obscure. So I decided to open up the article and it says, In response to the continued humanitarian crises around the world, the International Judo Federation is launching two initiatives to assist people affected by the current situation in Ukraine. The first is aimed at refugees and the second is targeted specifically to judoka. Below you will find a map with necessary information to find judo clubs near you. Click on the country market to view the list. More information to come as more clubs are added to the map in affected areas around the world. So what's really interesting here is what the IJF has done on this particular page. And the, and the, the website is noborders.ijf.org. They have provided a list of clubs in neighboring countries. It's an interactive map and you can click on... Uh, really there's various numbers on the map which means that there's a certain number of judo clubs in that region so if you are a, a judoka in Ukraine or if you are even a you know on on the Ukrainian national team trying to find a place to be a refugee and and, and trying to you know continue your judo training there's there's a lot in the, in neighboring Poland uh, it, it looks like there's about 66 judo clubs that uh you can train at in Poland. Moldova's got three. Let's see. Um, looks like Hungary's got about 23 clubs. And and I'm sure there's a lot of clubs um, in neighboring countries that are just not on this list yet. So I find this really interesting. There's a great resource for countries that are, 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 are bordering Ukraine or very close to Ukraine. I, I, I think it's a really nice thing what the, uh, what the IGF is doing here. They have also created another website called donation.ijf.org and it appears that you can make a donation to the IJF uh, Humanitarian Crisis Fund through a PayPal account. Now, I have no clue how those funds are dispersed and as far as I can tell, I can't see any information on that webpage indicating how those funds are going to be dispersed. So, I'm not sitting here and going to tell you that, that the IJF is looking to just take your money. But it would be nice to know where those funds are going to be dispersed, how that's going to be dispersed, who's going to benefit from that. Perhaps there is a Hungarian version of the Red Cross. Perhaps they will donate that to the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. I've got no idea. It would be nice to know a little bit of those details. Not that I don't trust the IJF. I just just be nice to know but but either way i think this is a really great step in the right direction for the ijf considering quite frankly in my opinion they they started off on on a bad footing with this whole crisis and yet you know i understand the relationships you have with russian dignitaries and certainly heads of state certainly uh with with uh, vladimir putin but you got to stand up for what's right here and and i think this is the right thing to do 
Now, as of this recording, um, well, now, I, it's been a couple of weeks since I started this recording, and now I'm trying to wrap it up. The Antalya Grand Slam is slated to start in a couple of days from now. Looks like it's going to land on uh, on April 1st, April Fool's Day. wonder if the rest of the world recognizes that. I know I, I try and ignore it as much as possible here. It's so dumb, right? April Fool's. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Though I did get my mom once. Pretty funny. I, I wrapped a... Uh, you, know, you know those sprayers on your kitchen sink? Well, I wrapped a couple of rubber bands around it and made made it tight. And then when she turned on the sink, she got sprayed with water. Oh, it was really funny. It, this was like in 1985 or something like that. I I thought I was a funny kid. I didn't get in trouble for it, thankfully. But uh, but yeah, that was my one claim to fame in terms of pranks. So where was I? Oh yeah, the Antalya Grand Slam. This is a big event. Obviously, it's a Grand Slam, especially with as I mentioned before. Certain events dropping off due to due to the uh, war in Ukraine. Looks like there's going to be over 560 competitors at this event. Uh, 336 men, 228 women. Now, what struck out? Uh, what stuck out to me right off the bat is Team Canada showing up to this event, which includes uh, Krista Degucci and Jessica Klimkate, both competing in the under 57 kilo division. And Krista Deguchi's sister, Kelly Deguchi, is going to be competing in the under 52 kilo division. I assume that's her sister. I mean, they they kind of look the same, right? So I I don't I'm I'm not familiar with Kelly Deguchi, but uh, I'm going to assume she's a recent newcomer to the World Tour. Team USA is sending nine competitors. I'm looking forward to seeing some of them compete, especially the ones that follow me on Instagram. <laughs> Japan will not be at the event, but Georgia will be there. I'm really looking forward to seeing Guram Tushishvili. It's been a while since I've seen him compete. And it looks like some of the other judo strong nations are sending a lot of players to this one. France is sending 25 competitors. Brazil is, all, is sending 24. Kazakhstan sending 23 competitors. Great Britain sending 18. Germany 18. And Mongolia 18 as well. It's a lot. It's a lot of players there. And, and, you know, like I was saying before, I, I think some of these countries are, are taking advantage of of um, these early points or these, uh, early, these opportunities for early points. So we shall see. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a good one. All right. I think that's going to do it for this episode of this podcast. I appreciate you checking it out. Apologize for the delay in getting this out. I just uh, I had some pretty life altering events happened uh, recently nothing really bad just uh, my son came home my older son came home so I'm just trying to help him out get him up on his feet and and um, already landed a job I'm very proud of him and now I just need to secure him a place to live and um, get him out of here <laughs> now you know what's interesting it's um as I've become an as I've become older in life as an older parent, I'm appreciating more and more than now, you you know, like when you have a kid and they grow, you know, and they're a little baby, you're like, oh, you can't wait for them to walk and talk. And then, then when they start walking and talking, you can't wait for them to sit down and shut up. And you're always looking for like the next thing to happen. I can't wait for this. I can't wait for that. Instead of really enjoying the moment, maybe, maybe that's, that's, maybe that was just me. 
and I was always involved with my kids and stuff, but I've always kind of been like, oh, it'll be nice one day when the kids are growing up, I can kind of retire and things like that. But I, right now, I, it's, it's, you know, I was telling my son the other night that it, gosh, it's, it's actually nice having you here. It, cause it had been about a couple of years since I've seen him or seen him with such consistency. He, he hasn't actually lived here with me in, in, in a, quite a number of years. And of course, I don't want to keep him here living here and stuff. He needs to grow up. He needs to do his own thing. It's just, it's just, I'm really appreciating the current and I'm really appreciating the now because, you know, thinking when I think more and more about it, the prospect of having a really empty home doesn't sound great to me. <laughs> I'm enjoying the hustle and bustle of life. And, and unfortunately, that may mean sometimes that I'm not able to crank out a podcast episode in a timely fashion. But I'm enjoying this. I, I wish I could hit pause on my life right now and keep things exactly the way they are for the next hundred years. But uh, we know that's an impossibility. So anyway, I probably should have kept that for the after party, which I will have an after party. But this is going to do it for the judo portion of the podcast. This might be a record short episode. So I hope you all enjoy it. I'll be sure to cover the Antalya Grand Slam in the next episode, among other subjects as well. But with that... I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style. All right, so the after party. So I'm going to cover a couple of TV shows that I've been watching, but then after that, I'm going to go off on a rant. I'm going to go off on a real rant, and, and I'm like really serious about this. This is one of those things that I've been bottling up inside that I just got to tell somebody how frustrated I am. But first things first, Outlander is back, and it's been back for about three weeks already, and what an excellent show. I mean, I could do without some of the gratuitous lovemaking scenes. I, I really hate that in television shows. I just figure save that for the internet or something. But other than that, I, I, I think it's just a tremendous show. It's really interesting. It's got its holes, which, you know, for anybody that's watched the show, if you haven't watched the show, well, it's going to get somewhat spoiled for you. You know, with Claire going back in time, how is it that every time she goes back in time, she goes right to the same period of time, and then when she goes through, goes in the future, she ends up like in the in the correct period of time? Like, why is it that every time she's gone through those portals or whatever, she ends up in the she doesn't end up in like you, you know Scotland in the thirteen hundreds or something like that? It's just my it's just minor quirks, but but the acting and and the storylines is really great. It's been great all of these years, and and season six is no exception. I think it's season six. Now, one show that I know is back for a season six, and I've been watching it is Peaky Blinders. Take a little walk to the edge of town, go across the tracks. Love that song. Love this show, and season six has been great. It's a little confusing. There was such a long break. Um, especially, especially with Helen McCrory uh, passing away, Aunt Polly. 
and I thought the first episode of of season six had a very nice send off for her. It was it was the right thing to do. It was appropriate way to do it. Now speaking of Helen McCrory, I'm currently watching Billions. I don't know if I've made I, I've talked about it already, but but Helen McCrory was um, Damian Lewis's wife. And Damian Lewis played Bobby Axelrod on Billions, and he's no longer on the show. He's not been on there for, gosh, what's he, is this season six as well for Billions? I can't even keep track anymore. But the show, by and large, has not missed a beat. You would think that losing its its arguably its biggest star would would uh, be an issue, but they've managed to transition without uh, Damian Lewis quite quite well. And I think the biggest reason for that is Paul Giamatti. Uh, Carrying that show, playing the role of uh, of uh, Chuck Rhodes. I don't know if Giamatti freestyles when he's when he's playing that role, but my goodness, the the writing in that show, and particularly for that character, is just it's just incredible. It's over the top, but over the top in a good way. Now, talking about over the top, and I don't mean the movie starring Sylvester Stallone, over the top in a bad way, is this show that I watched on Netflix called Bad Vegan. I watched four episodes of that, and and I was left pretty infuriated. I, and I hate I have to say it. I, I left infuriated over the main person the show was talking to, which was uh, that this lady who ran this vegan only restaurant in New York City and and swindled investors, and she swindled investors under the guise of being psychologically manipulated. And I'm not so sure about that. And the thing that I thought was really outrageous was for all the you know, for the the 1.6 million that she embezzled from investors, she ended up only serving, I think, four months in jail. You know, if it was some other lady from a poorer neighborhood running a beauty supply store, let's say, or a, a popular chain of beauty supply stores, and it was found out she, she was embezzling, and she didn't have the right celebrity connections, she would have gotten the max 15 years. But this lady, she's blonde, she's pretty. Ah, uh, let's not give her that much time because she's just too pretty to be in jail. I mean, that's kind of like that's what I was left feeling. You know, the, the, her employees got screwed out of out of uh, you know getting paid. Investors got screwed out of millions, and it's like what four months in jail? I don't know that that one really bothered me quite a bit. But that's actually not what I want to rant about. I want to rant about healthcare in this country. <laughs> I can't believe I'm even going here on this podcast. And this is not really even a political take. But I got to tell you, there's something really wrong with healthcare in this country. And as shocking as this may sound, I'm not blaming the insurance companies on this one. I'm blaming the doctors. Maybe not the actual doctors doing doing the care itself. But the office managers and and these hospital groups and things like that, you know what I discovered? So long story short, my stepdaughter has been having dizzy spells. So they've been getting progressively bad. So we take her to the, we, you know, one day we take her to the hospital. It, you know, it's kind of really bad. She gets run up with all of these tests and, you know, Hospital visit turns into a cardiologist visit, which turns into some other type of visit and visits here and there. And long story short, ends up having an iron deficiency. So we get bounced around to all these different doctors and hospitals because we're just, you know, hey, hey, kid has a problem. Take him to the emergency room. It's an emergency. You're fainting. You're passing out. What the heck's going on? But here's where it gets really crazy. 
And I don't know if this happens in other places, but, but this is certainly happening to me. We go to my local emergency room at, at my local hospital and we get billed for that hospital for emergency room visit. Of course, the cost is going to be high, um, but, but that's besides the point. But then here's the rub. We start getting bills from different places. We get, so we're getting a secondary bill for the same hospital visit under a different name. And you know what we find out what they're doing? And I don't know if this is legal or illegal, if this is just the way it is. Hospitals are double billing the insurance company for the same office visit, for the same emergency room visit. And the second quote unquote office within the hospital that's billing the insurance company, they are not covered under our insurance plan. So here, here it is. We go to the emergency room, which is covered under our insurance plan. We end up seeing a doctor that that's happens to be working there uh, by the hospital, but that particular doctor is out of network. So w- we get double charged. The doctor's just like, you know, he's just doing his job. He doesn't care about all that crap about billing and stuff. He doesn't do any of that. He just records the work that he did and the codes and, and it's up to these office managers and, and whoever the case may be to get as much money as possible. You know, and here's the other thing. Sometimes I just want to go to the doctor and I want to pay out of pocket. I don't want to involve the insurance company. Can't do it. I just found out that's illegal. So here I am with a stack of medical bills in the thousands, all in all to diagnose a iron deficiency, which probably could have been discovered had they just taken her vitals and just taken her blood work right off the top. But no, we got thrown around this, this mess of, of health care and we weren't even being cared for. Now, obviously, I don't blame my daughter for getting sick. Like that's that's not what I'm saying here. The problem is the care itself is terrible, and it's being screwed up by office managers trying to take advantage of insurance companies. Maybe insurance companies are playing a, a really dastardly role in this as well. But you know, the the people that end up suffering are are people like myself that just want to trust the doctors, right? I mean, that's the whole thing we've been been hammered out, hammered about for the past two and a half years with this pandemic. Trust the doctors, right? So yeah, we go to the doctor, we trust you're going to do the right job. And here we go, we get stuck with a, you know, thousands of dollars worth of bills over an iron deficiency. I could have gone to Walmart and and, and spent 20 bucks and, 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 and we would have been fine. You know, and the thing is, is, is that, you know, I'm not bragging or anything like that. I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing well enough that people making half of what I make are doing pretty well themselves. I don't know how a family making half of what I make, which there's millions upon millions of people like that, how they could get by if if their child or somebody in their family gets sick. And those people are just at that cutoff point where they're not getting Medicaid or some other government funded assistance. It's insane. It's robbery. And, and I, don't, I don't even know how this could possibly be fixed. But it seems like politicians in Washington on both sides of the aisle do not have the political will to try and do something that will actually fix health care and streamline this system that is just backwards and takes advantage of people. And honestly, I don't even know what the answer is. 
You know, in a government-run system, sounds great at first, but that only works if you cap what doctors earn. Because right now, doctors and these in in these hospitals and stuff, they they're they're charging ridiculous amounts of money to the insurance company because they're going to get it because the insurance company has to pay it out because it's the law, and and it's just this battle between office managers and insurance companies on who's going to get paid what, and and, and then they just stick the, the the patients with the bill. And I know next to nothing about single payer systems. All I know is that I can't imagine that working in this country. Unless you cap what doctors make. And it is that fair? Because these doctors pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think, to go to to go to school for eight years. How are they gonna pay those loans back? I you they, they gotta make a high salary, right? So I mean, do do you cap what they make? It, it, that seems kind of un American to me. If you could do that to doctors, what's to stop the government from doing that to other people? So I I don't know. I'm not saying this is a right or left issue. I'm not even trying to be a politico about it. I just, just a guy complaining about a problem here. And this is a real freaking problem. I don't know how people who, who make less than me can get by uh, with, without, with, without going bankrupt. It's insane. Oh, and by the way, I will be fighting this. I'm going to be calling up the insurance company and letting them know, hey, this hospital is double billing you under two different names for the same procedures on the same day. That 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 can't happen. So no, I'm not paying those. I'm not paying those thousands. I'm just saying I got billed those thousands. I ain't paying it. I'll I'll, I'll pay what I owe outside of the the outside of the deductible. But that's it. I'm I'm done.